Oh my god, hello everybody. What the heck is up? I'm back for a very special emergency Obscura Nation meeting. Um, it's actually not an emergency at all. It's just that I went to go see Saltburn last night and simply put that needs to be discussed and it doesn't really fit in line with the episode that I have planned for Monday. So I'm recording it right now and I'm just going to pop it up as a little bonus episode. And the other thing is that I started my dishwasher right before I started recording this and I didn't really consider how the noise from the dishwasher was going to impact impact recording. Okay. I didn't. Oh, and Adam's being really loud. Adam is my orange cat. Bruce is my gray cat. I have two cats. So Adam's being really loud. He's playing with an Amazon box that lives in our living room. It's his box. Okay. Get it right. Don't get it twisted. He has his own box, a dedicated Adam box. And between that and the dishwasher, um, I apologize, but I never claimed to be a high budget, high production operation. Okay. It is what it is. I actually would really like to just do this all in one take, um, which I've actually never done. Every podcast episode I've put out has been edited some more heavily than others because sometimes I go on like very unrelated tangents, but if I edit them correctly, I can turn them into a bit of a cohesive narrative, which is which is sometimes the route that I have to take if my if my brain isn't cooperating in the moment and I'm kind of like all over the place. But today, I don't really care if I'm all over the place. I just want to have a really cool, casual, fun discussion about salt burn because I was seeing so much like a discourse about this movie on Twitter and TikTok and I knew like nothing about it. The only thing I knew going into it was like whatever the IMDB like summary was and I I knew about the um the bathtub scene and I knew about the I knew that this, the Murder on the Dance Floor song was in it, but I wasn't sure when that song was going to be in it. Um, so that was... Okay, first of all, before I get into it, this is obviously going to be full of spoilers. If you haven't seen the movie and you want to see it or you don't want to have it ruined for you, please, let's do a little conscious uncoupling for the episode, okay? I'll see you back here on Monday. I'll have another up for you. I'm not trying to ruin anyone's fun, okay? And this movie is like... I thought it was a good story and I thought that the like twist was fun and I would hate to ruin it for you if you even want to see it a little bit. So take that, heed that warning, okay? Because I'm going to proceed with wild abandon and talk about everything. Okay, so like I was saying, I knew that the murder on the dance floor song was going to be in it because I'd been hearing it all over on TikTok and I was like, where did this song come from? It's been out since like 2002 and why am I hearing it all of a sudden now? I'm obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with like a modern disco. Are you kidding me? And then I found out that the reason it was getting so much buzz is because it was in Saltburn. And so the whole time I was watching the movie, I'm like, when are we going to get the murder on the dance floor scene? Because that is the very, very, very last scene in the movie, the closing scene of the movie after, um, what's his name? Oliver has slaughtered an entire family and 
inherited their home. He's dancing around naked, that song playing. He's like doing lines of coke off of tables. Like it is an iconic scene, genuinely. If nothing else, the whole movie is worth it for that. Like something about the ending of that movie just like really tied it all up together for me. I loved it. Um, Obviously today I was watching all sorts of interviews between Jacob and Barry and from the director, Emerald. How does she say her name? I think she pronounced it. Is it Emerald Fennell? But I read it as Emerald Fennell, like the spice. Um, But dude, love her. Love her. I was watching so many like interviews with her from like Variety. And I think I watched one from Esquire. And I don't know. I I really liked her humor and I liked her. I liked the way she explained her work. And yeah, I like it. I, I'd actually never seen um, Promising Young Woman. And now I have to watch it. Now I have to watch it. I've, I've, it's been in, it's been like in, you know, my atmosphere. Like I, I know about it and I know that it's like a cult classic that people like really love, but I've never watched it. And I think it's time. I really think it's time. Um, okay. Where should I start with this? Okay. Let's just, I have to start off with the casting of the movie and how perfect it was. First of all, Barry Kagan, I think is how we would say his name. Barry Kogan, Barry Kagan, Barry... I'm gonna say Kagan. I'm gonna bet. I'm gonna bet money on that. Who played Oliver was so stunning in that role. Like he was so something about him was like very disarming and like very like you couldn't you couldn't read him and like that was like so good. Like his performance was incredible. Jacob Elordi obviously like magnetic as fuck. Like here's the thing. I'm gonna talk about. I have to talk about Jacob Elordi for a minute. Okay, I have to talk about it because before. Like, this year, like, Jacob Elordi is kind of having a moment right now, right? Like, what is he in? He's in this movie, and he's also in Priscilla. And I just feel like he's been in the zeitgeist a lot lately. And I have never watched Euphoria, and I was aware that he was in Euphoria, but the only frame of reference I'd had for Jacob Elordi was The Kissing Booth. All I knew him from was The Kissing Booth, which I love that movie. Like, genuinely, unironically, unashamed, I love the movie, and I've seen all three of them. Okay, I hope there's a fourth. I don't know if that's on the table, but if there is, I would watch it. I would probably pay like $3.99 to rent it on demand. Okay, that's kind of where I'm at with the kissing booth. Um, but I don't think I didn't think Jacob Elordi was hot in the kissing booth. Like he wasn't really doing it for me in that movie. Um, so I never really was like, I don't know, I never really got it. And like I would see him in like paparazzi photos, and like I just didn't like get it because I'd never seen him in anything like in the kissing booth he was just like unsexy and like I I wasn't into it but I am like fully in drinking guzzling down the Jacob Elordi juice right now I get it you guys it took me a while I made it it's 2023 I made it okay I'm here I'm in it I am under the spell of Jacob Elordi I get it okay after last night watching this movie and after watching him in all sorts of interviews and after watching him and Barry doing like press together oh my god the way that Barry looks at Jacob in interviews is like so insane like you need to go watch them talk to each other I also okay you want to know what it was that kind of like got me in on Jacob Elordi this is probably going to be funny to people who've like always 
um, liked him. But the thing that converted me was that video of him and Barry Kagan doing press. And they were sitting in, in those chairs and Barry's iced coffee or something was sitting in front of Jacob and he like picked it down, picked it up for him and like handed it to him and put his giant hand on Barry's little knee. I think I'm remembering it correctly. And something about that, something about watching him do that, I was like, okay, I'm in. I'm, I'm gnawing at the bars of my enclosure for lack of a better word, you know? And like a big, like, you know, part of the, the movie was that Felix just kind of had this everyone under his spell like he was just so magnetic and everyone loved him and all the girls loved him and uh Oliver was obsessed with him and the height difference between the two actors I think really exacerbated like the power imbalance there and I loved that like uh, Felix dwarfed Oliver and I think that was really representative of like their vibes and kind of their dynamic within their relationship. I'm gonna reference a few videos that I've watched and um, articles that I've read. I'm gonna re- try to remember to link them in the show notes. Um, in the, there was a Vanity Fair, I saw it on YouTube, A break, it was Emerald Fennell breaking down the entry scene when Oliver is showing up at Saltburn for the first time and like he comes to this like giant like <laughs> estate with this like huge gargantuan door um and I really liked watching her break that down I think she pointed out like some really excellent details that like I didn't pick up on um like at, and here I would love to go re-watch the movie now that I've like gone like balls deep into like the press and watching the director's notes and stuff because I when I'm watching a movie the first time I like need to focus so much on like the plot and what's going on um because my auditory processing leaves a lot to be desired and I need to be like so focused on what's happening or I literally get lost in the first 20 minutes so I don't pick up on like little aesthetic details or like things like that. And so I would like to go back now that I know what's going on and watch it again so I can not pay attention as much to just trying to figure out what's happening. I don't have that problem at home because I always watch movies with subtitles at home. And it's so funny because after we left the theater last night, I went with Ty and Montana to to see Saltburn. And Montana was like, dude, like I wish there was an option where you could just like pay extra to go to a theater showing of a movie that has subtitles. And I'm like, yes, I would pay for that. I need subtitles so bad or else I don't know what's going on. And especially in a movie like Saltburn where people have like thick accents, I need I need the words on the screen. I need to read it. I love, I love to read my movies more than watch them. But one of the details that Emerald pointed out in this Vanity Fair video was... I think she's talking about the stylization of um, Felix's room and how there's this really like expensive tapestry that's hanging on the wall. And it's like, you know, like a $30,000 tapestry. And then in in the foreground, you see like an empty bottle of Diet Coke and cigarettes and an ashtray and this like cheapo Ikea lamp. And it's like this interesting dichotomy of like beauty and like having nice expensive stuff but like the fact that these people do just like live in this house and like this is their house and they are also like at the same time performing like cash casualness throughout the day 
like, I think, okay, this was a different video. I think this was the Esquire. Yes, one second. I pulled up my notes, okay? I was taking, <laughs> I had to bullet point as I was watching these. In the Esquire UK freeze frame video, um, Emerald was kind of talking about how they styled the characters in their, their like, wardrobes. And, like, Felix was always kind of wearing this, like, linen, like, drapey clothing. And he's always, like, walking around the house and just, like, bare feet on the marble. And, like, he's kind of, like, perpetually just, like, relaxed and chill. It's interesting when faced against this, like, really insane house. I want to talk about the house they filmed this in because... The lore behind this house is insane, and I didn't even finish reading the Architectural Digest <laughs> feature that I was reading because I wanted to um, just react to it in live time. Live, what am I trying to say? I wanted to react to it in real time, is what I was trying to say. Um, so I waited till I was on mic. But um, yeah, I liked, I mean, you really get the vibe of Felix being just like so like, relaxed and there there's this like air about him where like you see how insane Oliver is acting about him and you're like oh no like I get it like I get it there's like a certain panache there that like I don't think anybody could have played Felix as convincingly as Jacob Elordi and it's really a good example like his Felix and Oliver's kind of dynamic is like in my opinion a really good example of a cult of one I listened to um uh, trust me the podcast a lot I think uh hosted by Megan Elizabeth and Lola Blanc I haven't actually listened in a while I should catch up they oftentimes talk about how like a lot of relationships are cults of one and I would really like for a lot of the movie I kind of put Felix into that like cult leader role just because of the effect that he had on Oliver but it's interesting because as the movie progresses you realize that it's actually like the other way around in that Oliver has like put himself he has like wedged himself into this role as like a follower like as the cult the the single cult follower you know I don't know if that makes sense but like I mean I, I, right right away I thought that the whole movie was gonna be kind of like a like I definitely thought that Felix or someone in his family was going to be like the like the bad guy for like lack of a better phrase so like I was kind of gagged like when we got to the point that we figured like slowly I kind of started to pick up on the fact that like Oliver was not who he said he was when that kind of like comes to fruition the first time was when Felix took him home on his birthday and obviously found out that his mom wasn't an alcoholic and that his dad wasn't dead <laughs> like that was such I was gagged. My jaw was on the floor. I had to pick it up. I was like, oh my God. Because I knew something was going to go down because the whole car ride scene on the way there was like building so much tension. So I had this whole time like this preconceived notion that like Felix was going to at the end of the day be the like mastermind behind all of this. But no, it's Oliver. Oliver crafted this whole narrative in order to fit into the role that Felix would like to take in because it said so many times at the beginning that like Felix always like brings home these little like misfit toys over the summer and has these like seasonal friends that he gets really obsessed with for a short period of time and then like drops and goes on to the next one and the way I'm interpreting it is that Oliver had kind of like singled out Felix as his victim like in this situation like he had singled him out as somebody that he could manipulate and he did, but he 
he like shoehorned his way into his life a little bit. I really loved that revelation throughout the movie. I want to talk about the two like shock factor scenes, right? So we have the we have the bathtub scene and then we have the fucking the grave scene. I want to start with that one because the energy in the movie theater during the grave fucking scene was so crazy. There was like, we were not in a full theater, okay? It was also one of the tiny theaters. It was like downstairs. I didn't even know the movie theater that we went to had a downstairs, but they did. It was like this little theater and it was us and maybe like 20 other people and they were all like 18. And then there were these two guys beside us that looked to be like in their 20s or 30s. And they were like, (laughs) I could like feel the guy to my right, like holding his breath (laughs) sometimes. And like, it was during when he like laid down on the grave, on the dirt (laughs) and pulls out his dick and starts fucking the grave. Like the guy's energy beside me was (laughs) so funny because I could tell he was trying not to laugh because it was just like such a shocking scene that like you kind of did have to laugh. And I think I was kind of like, like, you know, like I react in a movie theater. Okay. Why? Like, of course, if I'm going to go to a viewing experience with other people, like I want to like experience it with them, you know, like I, I love it when people like laugh the crowd last night, because it was like a Gen Z crowd in the theater clapped after the Nicole Kidman, like AMC intro, which I thought was funny. I hate clapping at the end of movies, but I do really endorse clapping after Nicole Kidman. But yeah, you could really tell that the girls were gagged at the at that scene. They were gagged, they were gooped, all of the above. The other one, which I had not yet seen it, I hadn't like seen any pirated version of it, but I'd seen it described in great detail, the bathroom, bathtub, cum scene. First of all, we need to, we need to discuss. You can tell that this movie was directed by a woman because the beginning of the scene where like Oliver is watching Felix in the bathtub and like you kind of get the idea that he's in the bathtub jerking off that scene was like the definition of the female gaze you can see his arm moving and you can see like muscles flexing and you can hear him breathing heavy but it like leaves so much to the imagination like if a man directed this movie and it was women instead of men playing the characters, so I'm doing like a complete role rever- reversal here, a man would have never not shown the girl masturbating. Like we would have just gotten a full shot of that. And I think it was very tasteful and a very good detail that in Saltburn, they chose to leave a little bit to the imagination. Like it was... I mean, like, I am a female and I have a female gaze. So, like, I obviously really resonate with female gaze movies, okay? And, I mean, I had in my head that I was going to see some kind of licking the, like, cummy bathwater out of the bathtub. But, like, what I didn't realize is that he was just going to be, like, performing full-on cunnilingus with the bathtub drain. And I did, I think... I think everyone in the theater when we saw that, everyone was like, ah! like everyone was like, ah! Ah! because you can't not, you couldn't not do that. And 
what was it? What was the video it was? It was either the Esquire video or the Vanity Fair video. She was talking about like why they chose the house that they did and kind of like the fact that there's this idea of that you're always being seen in the Saltburn house. And there's like, like voyeurism is such a like theme throughout the movies. Like everyone's always just like watching everybody else. And there's all these giant floor to ceiling windows and you can just kind of like see through the whole house, like front to back. And in the bathroom, because of the way the mirrors are, if you're in the bathtub and there's someone standing at the mirror, you can see each other in the mirror, even if your like, backs are facing each other. And that's important to note because there are a lot of times where, or I guess there's a few scenes in the movie where one of the boys is in the bathtub and one of them is standing at the counter at the sink. And so the idea is that they can not be facing each other, but they can still see each other. And then the clawfoot bathtub is just like in the middle of the room. Like it's a really sick ass bathroom. It is awesome looking. I want to go there. Let me stay in the Saltburn house so bad. I want to go. Let me stay there, please. Someone get me there. It seems as though the bathroom was designed to be like sexy and dark and weird. Okay. And I think they succeeded at that. Okay, I do have to say, I, okay, Barry K- Barry Kagan, never, never seen him before. Never seen him before Saltburn. Banshees of Inishirin was his project that Ty had seen. I think both Ty and Montana went into it seeing that movie. And then I also didn't know he was in A Killing of a Sacred Deer. I looked up that movie. It looks like a movie that I would hate, to be completely honest with you. It looks like a bit too, um, like a bit too cerebral <laughs> for me. So I think I'm going to avoid it. But in the Vanity Fair video of Emerald Fennell breaking down the entry scene, she said that she'd seen Barry in A Killing of a Sacred Deer and she was so taken by his performance. I think she said it was like the best performance she'd ever seen from an actor, like full stop, end of story. And she described him as, I wrote this down because I had to remember it. She described his performance as chilling and sort of sexy and weird. And that is exactly his whole vibe. I kind of feel like that, that's a, I mean, that is exactly how he played Oliver as well. And he's like inexplicably attractive. Like he's not, like if you showed me Barry Kagan and were like, do you think this guy's hot? I'd be like, no. But like once you see, <laughs> see him in a movie, I feel like you're like, oh, I'm there. I'm in. I'm like, I'm guzzling the juice, you know? Anyway, moving on. Another fact that I really found interesting that I learned from the Vanity Fair video is that the reason they shot the film in the aspect ratio they did, they shot it in like this narrow aspect ratio. It was like 1.33 to 1 aspect ratio, okay? According to uh, Google Generative AI, this means that the width of the image is 1.33 times its height. So it's like kind of a square, but not quite. It creates a narrow frame and um, allows you to get more height to the frame. And the reason they shot the film that way was because they didn't want to cut off the ceilings in the house. Like the the house that they shot it in is beautiful. And I am getting to that soon because I think that's like my biggest fixation on the movie now that I've dipped a toe into it. It's this amazing 127 room like Baroque manor and it does have the most beautiful ceilings and it is really interesting that that was such a, a crucial part of the filming of the movie was that they didn't want to cut off the beauty of the home because it does it just like drips opulence it's like it's like a little gauche almost 
I highly recommend this article. Um, it is the, it's on architecturaldigest.com. It is called Inside the Enchanting Home Where the Madness of Saltburn All Goes Down by Emily Zemler. Emily Zemler, thank you for writing this. I am so curious about this house and I will be absolutely devouring this knowledge. So the director wanted a completely unique house to film at because apparently a lot of period pieces, um, like specifically ones that take place in a house of this style, like an English estate vibe, um, they all just use the same property. <laughs> this I'm also reading this on Architectural Digest, but um, Batman, Sleepy Hollow, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, V for Vendetta, Get Him to the Greek, and The Favorite are all filmed, at least partially, at this house called the Hatfield House in Hertfordshire, England. And according to IMDb, no fewer than 69 television shows and movies have used the property. So I guess there's just these like national trust properties that all sorts of productions use. But Emerald Fennell was like set on finding a house that they could film the entire movie in. Like she didn't want to have separate sets. Um, so her and the production designer found the Saltburn house. But guess what? They had to persuade the owners to let them film there. Duh. I'm sure that was like not easy to do. But as part of the contract, no one involved in the production is allowed to tell you the name of the house or where it is or anything about it. Isn't that, I love a little secret. It makes me want to know even more. I don't think, I think this is having like a little bit of like the Streisand effect on me because like now that they're trying so hard to not reveal where this house is, like I'm going to try even harder to find it. And this house has never even been photographed before. There are no pictures of this home. It has never been put on film. And I think that is just delightful. What an amazing morsel of knowledge. The secret house. Oh my God, this house is so beautiful. I want to live there so bad. Okay, I'm reading from the article now. Many rooms were altered to serve the narrative, including the boys' bedrooms, which are connected by a bathroom that was installed into an existing bedroom and painted with a glossy red paint. The elegant bathtub was constructed from modeled fiberglass to fit to fit actor Jacob Lordy's six foot five frame. They made him a custom tall guy bathtub. Why am I going to cry? The maze was not a part of the original property, but the production designer hired this literal like top tier maze designer. His name is Adrian Fisher to create the maze. Okay. And this guy is like the y'all. I'm putting y'all into Adrian Fisher, okay? Because I didn't know this guy existed until today, all right? I don't know a lot of stuff, okay? I don't. He is like the creator of mazes. Like, this guy created the concept of mazes and, like, tessellations and many other things, too. And he's only 72. He was only born in 1951. So this guy designed the shape of the maze, but it wasn't... A possibility for them to build it entirely so the connect the corridors that connect to the center of the maze which is where like the minotaur sculpture was um those were constructed with hedging it says but the rest of the maze is cgi which is interesting i didn't know that this is another blurb from the ad article 
Though the house's architecture and decor is magnificent, not everything on screen is intended to evoke beauty. Part of Fennell's vision for Saltburn was that the house had a texture of life. There are ashtrays filled with cigarette butts, plates caked with leftovers, and crystal glasses that have been knocked on the floor. It's a lived-in feeling that feels glamorous and filthy at the same time. Okay, <laughs> the thing that stuck out about this was the glamorous and filthy line, because I don't know if this is going to land with you guys, but... If you are a Caroline Calloway follower like I am, that is kind of like what Caroline wants to be giving all the time. Like in her New York apartment that she had, she moved out last year. She lives in Sarasota now. I, don't worry. I'm giving you guys all the juice on Monday, okay? Caroline Calloway deep dive coming on Monday. Subscribe. You know what the deal. But in her New York studio, she... First of all, it was a studio. So, like, you know, it was, like, her bed was, like, in the kitchen. It was, like, that kind of vibe, which slay. Like, I do think that's amazing. Like, put that bed in the kitchen, girl. We love a we love a one-room house. Like, it's less to clean, right? Caroline really took that to the extreme because she, like, had, like, candle wax, like, on the hardwood all the time. And she had, like, all this, like, jewelry and just, like, crap, like, draped everywhere. And, like... She would, but she was also like extremely obsessed with and had this like absolute fixation on like British wealth and like luxury and opulence of that fashion. And like the Saltburn house, the way they had it styled with that quote unquote texture of life is exactly what Caroline Calloway wishes she could be. I actually would love to know Caroline's take on this movie. I think she would probably love it because she is such a big Oxbridge girl. Okay, I just saw a picture in the in the AD article. They included a photo of Jacob Bellorty with the eyebrow piercing. And I need to discuss the eyebrow piercing. Like, maybe you're finding it hard to understand why Oliver would suck the cum water out of the bathtub and then fuck his grave after he died. But I think that Jacob Lordy with an eyebrow piercing would probably have that effect on all of us. In the Esquire UK freeze frame video that I was watching on YouTube, Emerald was talking about how she and the producer were in an argument over the eyebrow piercing because she wanted to style him with the eyebrow piercing because in her words, in 2007, there was nothing hotter than a guy with an eyebrow piercing. And the producer disagreed. And their reasoning was that it was an abomination to destroy Jacob Elordi's inherent beauty. And so I'm really seeing both sides of that one. But apparently the agreement was that Felix could have his eyebrow piercing at Oxford, but not at Saltburn. And so that's why when Oliver arrives at Saltburn, Felix does not have his eyebrow piercing in. And he explains it by saying that his mom has a phobia of like piercings and beards. And that's why. It's because the producer didn't think that he should have an eyebrow piercing. I thought the soundtrack was incredible. I loved all of the mid-2000s hits that you're hearing. There is this amazing, amazing montage in the movie set to Time to Pretend by MGMT. And I... I felt myself like levitating when I heard those first notes of the song start. This montage, I would go watch the movie again just so I could see this again and listen to the song to this footage again. Impeccable, no notes. There's Mr. Brightside by The Killers that makes a, a cameo. 
the Cold War kids hang me up to dry is also in the film. I don't know. I love a good, like, mid-aughts alternative hit, you know? I'm a simple girl. That's all I want. Obviously, Murder on the Dance Floor by Sophie Ellis Baxter. Impeccable choice. No notes on that either. What a perfect ending to the movie. What an immaculate song. If December had been included in my 2023 Spotify wrapped, I think that Murder on the Dance Floor would probably overtake as my top song because I think I played my top song, which was Hits Different by Taylor Swift, 20 times. And I think I've played Murder on the Dance Floor 20 times, like within the past two weeks. So there's that. Also, that whole album. The whole album that Murder on the Dance Floor is on is full of bangers. So I highly recommend that. I can't remember what it was called, but I put it on the other day while I was like doing chores and I was like bopping and moving and grooving. I think it would be a great workout album if you are into that. Uh, Not me. Y'all stay safe though. You know what team? I think I'm signing off for the day. I think that that was what I needed to get off my chest and off my desk. Um, Oh, I didn't even mention that Rosamund Pike was excellent in the movie as well. Miss Gone Girl herself. I thought that she was a rather great addition to the cast. I think that Barry Kagan deserves an award. And also I want to see him in so many more things now. He was captivating to watch. I know there's a lot of scenes that I didn't cover, didn't mention. I don't know. This wasn't meant to be a comprehensive review by any means. I just wanted to get on the mic and yap for a little bit. I just had to clock in real quick for a shift at the Yap Factory, okay? Which is, I'm the CEO, actually. Definitely gonna do a rewatch, probably when it's released on streaming. But yeah, if you have any thoughts, please share them with me. If you, uh, you know, would like to have a question or a comment or anything you would like to share with the class, please message me on Instagram and let's get down to business. I'm trying to get the podcast Instagram to 100 followers by the end of the year. So if you're not following ObscuraPod on Instagram, please go do that. Because guess what? I'm not very close to my goal. I'm less than halfway there. I think I have 46 followers on that account. And do you know how hard it is to grow an Instagram account? Do you know how hard it is to get like 100 followers on Instagram? It's insane. I don't know how people are doing it. And like, oh my God, my whole Reels algorithm. You guys, Reels is the bad place right? Is everyone else just like in the absolute trenches when it comes to their reels algorithm? Because it is just nonstop women who are like, "Mm, this is how I made $23,000 every single month by selling digital products online. Or I'm a mom and now I get to stay home with my two kids and make $10,000 a day doing social media. Want to know how? Details and caption. No, I don't know how because you want to know what? I'm someone that has like media literacy skills and critical thinking skills. And I know that if I'm seeing a video of someone who is putting hard numbers in it, who is just exposing their salary like that and like how many figures they're making every month, I know that it's bait and I know that it's a get rich quick scheme. And I don't know why they figured out a way to rebrand the get rich quick scheme as something different and I fucking hate it because I know that people are falling for it and I know it's not their fault because those videos are designed to prey on people who are in desperate situations and it makes me mad okay I could go on and on and on but I hate it because none of it's like good advice none of it is actually good advice for how to hack the algorithm or grow your following in two days or whatever like they claim to have done it's all bullshit anyway I love you thanks for stopping by thanks for listening
if you would like to leave a little five-star review for the podcast, I, of course, would never argue against that. I would never sort of prevent you from living your truth in that way. So if you are feeling compelled, if the if the power of God is telling you to leave a five-star review on my podcast, go ahead and honor that, okay? If your intuition is telling you, go ahead and honor that. I want you to listen to yourself. And if you listen really close... That little voice inside your head is probably telling you to leave a five-star review. All right, team. I'll see you Monday. Keep on keeping on, and I'll see you on the other side.